Washington efforts to get spending under control and improve digital access. Work in Nashville to improve educational outcomes. Tonight, the candidates who want to tackle the issues. From News Talk 94.1 and Late Rock 95.9, your chance to hear where the candidates stand, their background, their interests. Election 2020. Meet the candidates. While the focus of Tuesday night may be on the presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, there are local races that mean a lot to the people of the Upper Cumberland. Meet the Candidates is your chance to find out about the candidates, their background, how they make decisions, how they look at budgets, the issues that are important to them and to you. We're glad you're here tonight for our series of Meet the Candidates for the November election. Tonight, you'll meet one of the candidates for the United States Senate to represent the state of Tennessee, Bill Haggerty. Also tonight, we'll meet the two candidates who want to represent Putnam, Cumberland, and Van Buren County from District 25 in the Tennessee House, Cameron Sexton and Robin Deck. Meet the Candidates continues as we sit down with Bill Haggerty. He is a candidate for the United States Senate. He wants to represent the volunteer state as a Republican. Bill Haggerty, welcome to Meet the Candidates. Very great to be with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. So why do you want this job? You know, um, want is an unusual choice of words. If you ask me to pick the more operative word in my thinking and in our prayers, it's because we feel like we have to. Um, my wife and I have four young kids. We've, we've thought and prayed very hard about the direction our nation is going. As, as you may know, I was serving as United States Ambassador to Japan until um, about a little over a year ago when we left to come and run for this open United States Senate seat. And we saw our nation heading in a direction that we just couldn't imagine. Um, and looking at our children, thinking if we didn't step up and do everything we could, to support the freedom and the opportunity that America stands for. We didn't do everything that we could to, to step up and stand up against the threat of socialism that the Democrats are really pressing on our nation. How could we look our children in the eye, our grandchildren hopefully someday, saying that we had the ability, God has, God has uh, blessed me with, with, with certain experiences as a businessman, uh, as the person that ran economic development for our state the last time that we turned out of the, the recession back in 2011, uh, when we were coming out of the, the last recession that we were in, and someone that's had the, the incredible experience of serving as the ambassador to the third largest economy in the world, that's Japan, who is our most important strategic ally in the Asia-Pacific. We're dealing with North Korea, parts of Russia, and China every day. And I understand the threat of China very clearly. I dealt with them militarily, diplomatically, economically. They're a predator at every level. We need somebody that understands the international threats and is able to stand up to them, but also somebody that's willing to come back and stand up to the threats that we face domestically here as a nation, too, because this election is going to be boiling down to a freedom between socialism and freedom. I want to talk about your jobs specifically with the, the Department of Economic and Community Development, also the, the Japan ambassadorship, but start with just uh, a little bit about you yourself. You grew up in Middle Tennessee? That's right, Larry. I'm from Sumner County. We had a small farm in a place called Castalian Springs, um, and I'm from, from the Gallatin area. People will know that. Uh, grew up in a very modest background. Uh, my mom, a career school teacher, she started actually teaching school at age 19 at Clarksville High School, and she's taught around the Middle Tennessee area. My father, uh, a veteran, uh, a road builder, uh, you know, I, I raised cattle and pigs as a kid. I was an Eagle Scout. Um, I was president of my FFA chapter when I was a boy. I uh, worked my way through college uh, on the road crew, shoveling asphalt alongside my dad. I was the first male in my family to graduate from college. And that gave me a tremendous opportunity to, um, to, to go out and create a business career that I could have never imagined as a, as a young boy growing up in Gallatin. Um, I, I've been very fortunate in my life to be successful in business, to have a career that's taken me in, in, in you know, a lot of different places uh, and a lot of different successes, starting and building businesses, 
and also working, um, you know, in, in a variety of arenas that really have helped me understand the importance of, of economic growth and how important a job is to the well-being of a family. Like, I, I've been there before as a kid. I, I know what it's like when my dad lost his job. Um, it's it's tough on a family, um, and, and having a good job, you know, cures a lot of social ills, and so that is that has been my focus. A businessman, a, 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 a someone that cares a great deal about Tennessee. I love this state. And when we were coming out of the last recession and transitioning from a Democrat administration to a Republican one, the governor-elect reached out to me and said, uh, would you come in and help run the economic development department for our state? So I came in in January 2011 to run the economic and community development department for the state of Tennessee. At that time, Tennessee's unemployment rate was higher than the national average. We were in the bottom half of all states, Larry. And we had a big budget deficit, too. Uh, over a billion dollars uh, was, was left to us in the previous administration. Had spent over 100% of the budget for the Economic Development Department. I didn't even know you could do that. But the legislature allows them to overcommit to some of the things that they work on. So we really had a, a, a huge challenge ahead of us. I went right to work as a business person, restructured the department, eliminated over 40% of the positions in the department, not because the staff were doing anything wrong. We just needed to save money as a state and get back to a balanced budget. So that saved millions of dollars for Tennessee taxpayers, and that also allowed me to restructure the department. So instead of having everybody sitting in the Tennessee Tower in Nashville, Tennessee, we went to a regional structure. We opened an office there in the Upper Cumberland. We did that around the state. And I worked my heart out for four years, loved every minute of it. And by the time I left, Tennessee had become the number one state in the nation for creating jobs through foreign investment. A lot of that was from Japan. And Tennessee had been named the number one state in the nation for economic development two years in a row. So you can come in with a fresh approach, a business-like approach, save money, be physically responsible, and deliver great results. That's what happened for us uh, right here in Tennessee. After that, I went back to the private sector, my, my, my old life. And then uh, in 2016, I heard candidate Donald Trump talking about standing up to China that I'd never heard a candidate, either Republican or Democrat, ever say or do. And I thought, I need to step up and help him. I've been concerned about China, the predatory threat that China is to America and the rest of the world, our vulnerability to China. Uh, when I heard candidate Trump talking about that, I decided I was going to go in and I volunteered full-time for six months to help President Trump get elected. A lot of people said it couldn't be done, uh, but I believed and I, I believed that we could get it done. In fact, I believe we had to get it done. And President Trump won that election. Then I came in and helped him on the transition team. My responsibility was helping him put the cabinet together. Uh, we worked through that and, and uh, built some great relationships there as President Trump built his cabinet, and I worked alongside him to do that. And when it came down to what I should do to help the administration and to help our nation, um, we decided the best place I could go was Japan. It's the third largest economy in the world after the United States and China. It is the home to the largest component of the United States military anywhere in the world outside of the United States. We have more men and women active duty military stationed in Japan than anywhere else. The reason for that is it's the cornerstone of all of our Asia-Pacific strategy. That's how we do it, North Korea, Russia, China, right there. So I've seen China up close. I've experienced it economically as a business person, seeing what their predatory practices were like. But now I've had the opportunity to see their military aggression, dealing with them every day. China has increased their military budget eightfold over the past couple of decades. They've become extremely aggressive in the South China Sea, the East China Sea. Those are the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Then you think about the diplomatic aggression. Look no further than the World Health Organization and their influence there. That's happening around the world. It's certainly happening in that region. And when President Trump talked to me about coming back home to fill this open Senate seat, he underscored the fact that I've had the experience in China that no one in the Senate has, uh, that we need a voice in the Senate that understands the threat that China poses. And by the way, he needs an ally that can help him work on these issues. So my wife and I, as I said, prayed hard and thought hard about the challenges, uh, again, we're facing domestically, which we just could not believe the direction things are going. And then the challenges that we face um, internationally as well, and determined that it was time to step up, come home, and run for this open Senate seat and represent Tennessee to the fullest of my ability. 
Let's talk about some of those challenges. Uh, COVID has certainly uh, exacerbated the amount of spending that is going on in Washington, and, and a lot of that for good reason, obviously. But we have been on a path for several years where spending is on the rise. The national debt is unprecedented. How do you see that issue? What do we need to do? As, as I mentioned, um, I'm a fiscal conservative. The, you know, the results speak for themselves in terms of what I was able to do in, um, you know, at, at the state level in terms of turning around the department that I was asked to run and saving millions of dollars of, of taxpayer money in the meantime. Um, also, I was, uh, you know, as I looked at the situation at home, as my wife and I did, we got about a $23 trillion debt that we had at that time. Now it's $26.5 trillion because of the spending that you mentioned uh, due to this pandemic. I'm very concerned about it. Look, I, I served as our ambassador to Japan. That's a nation that has a huge debt, you know, huge debt relative to GDP, much greater than our own. But we're getting into very dangerous territory right now, and I think that's why we need now more than ever business people who understand how to meet a budget, who understand how to look at things for efficiency, and who are willing to ask the basic question, is this something that the federal government ought to be doing? And if the answer to that is no, we shouldn't do it. And if it is, to further push and say, are we going to do this in the most efficient, the most effective way possible? And I can assure you, after spending time in the federal government as our ambassador, I had to deal with the State Department every day and many other agencies. I had 27, 28 other agencies that reported to me out there. These are agencies of the U.S. government. I can tell you there's a lot of inefficiency a lot of opportunity to, to, to cut, and we've got to take that perspective to Washington. Again, we need more people with a business perspective to do just that. I appreciate you raising the issue. I think too few people are talking about this, Larry, the, the size and the significance of our, of our debt. And at some point, that's going to become a huge strategic issue for us if we don't begin to bend it back the other direction. To take it a step further, Bill, do you believe that we have the wherewithal or the, um, the willingness maybe both parties to get the budget balanced? Well, you know, if we think about it as individuals, we all balance a budget at our home. We balance a budget here at our state level. It's not, it, it, this is a concept that, that Americans understand. We just got to put pressure on our leaders to get it done. And, you know, whether there's a willingness or not really depends on us as, 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 as individuals, as citizens, to put pressure back on them. It's citizens like me who've never run for office before in my life stepping up and saying, look, I'm going to go there to push back on this. I'm going to, I'm going to, 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 to go up there and be a strong voice for this. But I think we all have that uh, responsibility to push back on what has been um, just an unaccountable situation in Washington where they've let this grow, you know, enormously. And a lot of these programs get set up. They never, they never get sunsetted. Uh, you know, something's constructed 40 or 50 years ago, maybe way outdated. I can tell you that's true with our regulations, too. But you know, we have these spending programs that just go on forever. Uh, I think people with a business perspective need to come in and take a very fresh look. But President Trump has tried to do this, and he's had a tremendous amount of pressure back from, you know, from the bureaucracy, from the so-called deep state, which I dealt with that too. It is a huge challenge. And I think in a second term, uh, we, will, we will see a lot more progress in terms of pushing back on the bureaucracy and really making certain that the voices of our elected officials are heard and that we take more physical responsibility into account as we manage the federal government. Bill Haggerty is a candidate for Senate as we bring uh, you the chance to find out more about what he stands, uh, where he stands on the issues with Meet the Candidates. Let's talk about infrastructure. We'll talk about roads and highways in a moment. That's the first thing that people think about. But we have seen in the Upper Cumberland that access to the Internet is a different type of infrastructure, but it's just as important. What role does the federal government play in your mind in making sure that that access is there? Larry, um, I think that the pandemic, the shutdown that occurred, has really highlighted for, for all of Tennessee and all of America how critical broadband access is. And as you mentioned, it's a critical component of infrastructure today, of modern infrastructure. Tennessee is blessed to have a great highway system, one of the best in the, in the nation. It makes us very competitive. I know, as I, as I marketed our state to try to attract uh, companies to move here, that sort of backbone, that sort of infrastructure is critical. But broadband infrastructure is critical, too. Uh, we have just, Tennessee has just received $88 million in grants recently through this, through, through, in this past year to help us build out broadband. 
We've got counties in our state. I was just over in Cott County the other day. 70% of the homes there are not connected to broadband. You know, the terrain explains part of it, uh, but we've got a big challenge here in Tennessee, and the federal government uh, is stepping up, as I said, with $88 million of grants to help build out broadband now. Uh, I want to encourage the private sector to do as much as possible to create the environment for that to happen. And I'm certainly going to work closely with Marsha Blackburn to help close this digital divide. I don't think we've got a stronger voice in Washington right now than Marsha Blackburn on this. She focused on this when she was a member of Congress, and she and I will work very closely together, I feel certain, if I'm fortunate enough to be selected as Tennessee's next United States senator. Nashville is growing. Memphis is growing. Knoxville is growing. Uh, and when you talk about roadways and highways, there is concern that are we keeping up with the growth that is happening? And sometimes when that issue comes up, TDOT points at the federal government. The federal government says it's a state issue. In your mind, whose issue is it? Well, the federal government has a big role to play here. And, you know, as a business person, I understand this. I grew up in, you know, shoveling asphalt. Uh, you, you need to be able to think about infrastructure on a multi-year basis. Some of these projects, you know, roads, bridges, highways, you can't go year-to-year budgeting, but yet that's how the federal government does it. Uh, they need to be able to put in place a package that would allow our state to then know with certainty how much federal money is going to be coming our way. And that way, our head of ten, you know, the Tennessee Department of Transportation can then make you know, much more efficient planning. I was talking with somebody just the other day. This is about building airport runways, another part of our infrastructure. And, you know, one city uh, here in Tennessee is doing it year by year. And another city has been able to put together, because they were able to go to the bond market, they've been able to put together a multi-year package and save about 30% in terms of the total cost. There is an efficiency here that business people understand. We just need to get Washington in gear to focus on this and, and, and do things that are more practical from a business standpoint and more cost savings uh, for, for the American citizen. I can tell you this. I've traveled from Mountain City to Memphis and all around the Upper Cumberland, and I'm going to advocate strongly to continue to invest in our infrastructure because that's a huge competitive advantage for us. Bill Haggerty, let's talk education. Uh, is, is education, in your mind, is it a federal responsibility or is it a state and local responsibility? It is not a federal responsibility. Um, the, the, um, I think I'm a parent of four, four children who are in you know, middle school and high school right now. Um, I certainly, as a parent, want local control of what our curriculum is. I don't think we need somebody from Washington or uh, from you know, outside of our state telling us what to do. I think we know best locally. I want to see the decision as close to the parents as possible, frankly for the management and the curriculum of our schools. I also want to see our schools back open again. I think that's, that is absolutely critical. This, the students, it's been demonstrated, are falling backwards in terms of their performance. We're, we've missed you know, a, almost a year now, and that really is setting our kids back. They also, it's not just the academic need, Larry. Some of our kids rely on school for the only healthy meal they get in a day. Uh, there's, there's a critical component there, and regretfully, for some of our children, you know, a school may be a far safer place for them to be during the daytime than their home. It's also keeping parents that, that don't have the luxury of working from home. Uh, it's keeping them unemployed. So we need to get our schools back open as well. Bill Haggerty, it has been talked about a lot in the last several weeks with things going on in Washington, and that is the role of the Constitution as it relates to legislation and how we govern our nation. How do you see that issue? exactly right. It's playing out right before us with the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Um, I expect her to be confirmed by the full Senate on Monday. She's a constitutionalist. She's somebody that's going to interpret the Constitution as written. I can tell you, going from one end of the state of Tennessee to the other, that's what Tennesseans want to see, too. I think a huge fear that I have, the Tennesseans have, is that if we were to elect Joe Biden, they've made this, it's, 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 pretty clear what they're planning to do. They're going to pack the court. What does that mean? They're going to expand the size of the Supreme Court by adding four new justices that Joe Biden would select. What they want to do is put activist judges on the bench, partisans who will make up the law. They will transform the Supreme Court if they have their way into what I would call a super legislative body, meaning they have a lifetime appointment. 
they're never again accountable to the voters. And they can use the court ruling as a backdoor to impose their legislative, their, their very liberal legislative policies onto America. They'll rubber stamp socialism from a Biden Supreme Court. We cannot let that happen. Bill Haggerty, you have a unique perspective in that you've been in business. You also spent early days in farming. What is the the line between regulation and letting business and, and agriculture, a business as well, do the things that they need to do to, to make the decisions to be prosperous? Well, I would applaud President Trump and the administration for what happened in early 2017 by going through a first major wave of regulatory review and reform. That's helped our farmers. That's helped industry all across the nation. Uh, getting regulatory hurdles out of the way is one of the first steps in helping business thrive and survive. I'd also say this. We've gone back through another wave now of regulatory reform. It's underway right now. President Trump has named me to the White House Economic Recovery Task Force during this pandemic. And the two things I've been focused on first are the next wave of regulatory reform, because we can't make the same mistake that Biden and Obama did back in 08 and 09. You remember that. They put a $1.5 trillion stimulus into the economy, yet we had the slowest recovery on record. Why? Because they increased the regulatory regime. They grew the size of government at the same time. Business people know that you've got to get government out of the way for businesses to thrive. So we're now going through another wave of regulatory review. This time, the aim is to look at permitting timelines, things that actually slow down our infrastructure projects, to learn how to to find new ways to parallel process, to compress the time it takes to get permits, also to look for more regulatory hurdles that are hurting our farmers and that are hurting our businesses and get them out of the way. The other thing I would add is this, though. As the United States ambassador to Japan, I worked my heart out for two years to get the U.S.-Japan trade deal done. That deal opens up the third largest market in the world. That's Japan. It's the third largest market after the United States and China. Ninety percent of the agricultural product that we will sell to Japan now will go with either zero tariff or the most favorable tariff possible. That's going to open up new markets for our Tennessee farmers. That's going to be tremendous in terms of more sales and higher prices. That's going to be great for America. That's what I understand how to do. And as you mentioned, I grew up around a farm. I, I joked with the negotiating team. I was probably the only person working on that trade deal that knew their way around the barn as well as I did around the negotiating table. We need more people with practical common sense who are in a position of making these decisions. And if we're able to do that, we're going to propel our nation forward. That's what the U.S.-Japan trade deal does for our farmers, and I'm very proud to have played a role in that. Do you believe at your heart that if, if given the opportunity that – the majority of the time that business people will make not only the best economic decision, but also protect, whether it's customers, employees, those types of things that regulations are in place for? There, there are certainly areas where, where regulation is, is called for and, and, and warranted. I just think that we need to be careful and very, very thoughtful about how it's done. I also think that regulations sometimes need to be sunsetted. If you look at the sclerotic nature of the regulatory environment in Washington, it's a dragnet on our economy. You've got outdated regulations, regulations that pertain to technologies that no longer exist, regulations that haven't contemplated, you know, current technologies or technologies of the future. Uh, you've got, you know, large, large technology companies today that are operating under, you know, exclusions to libel laws. For example, Twitter, Facebook, who when they were started uh, were given an, an exemption from the libel laws to help them grow. But now they've become censors. Uh, you know, they've decided that they want to become arbiters of the law. Sometimes you've got to go back and change those rules. But I think that what we've got to do is, uh, is look at any regulation with a cost-benefit analysis in mind to make certain that the benefit to society isn't outweighed by the cost. If you look at what Pelosi wants to do, I mean, the, the, the angle that the Democrats in Congress are taking is a huge disincentive to work and grow a business. They, they want to expand the regulatory regime. And from a business person's perspective, I think we need to be streamlining it every opportunity that we get. The fact that, that uh, you know, we've got businesses that are in business for the long term also, uh, you know, says to me that businesses should be thinking about the well-being of their consumers every day. As a business person, I know I always did. They should be thinking about the climate, and we do. 
look, America is the only nation in the world right now reducing carbon emissions at a time when all the signatories to the Paris Treaty that we pulled out of, because it was such a bad deal, they failed to meet their obligations. You know, their carbon emissions are going up while ours are going down. We're not subject to that treaty, but it's technology, it's innovation that's driving that. And I like to see American, uh, I like to see American innovation come into play. That's good for our consumers, and it's it's good for our environment. Finally, Bill Haggerty, as uh, folks go to the polls next week across the Upper Cumberland and cast their ballot, why should they vote for you? I one want to say that uh, I very much appreciate it and want to work hard for every vote in Tennessee. I've been out campaigning um, every day, full-time, for over a year right now to, to earn the respect and the trust and the confidence of Tennessee voters. And I want them to know that I understand that conservative values are Tennessee values. And those are the values that I'm going to take to Washington. I'm going to stand up for our Tennessee values. And I'm going to make certain that we see more freedom and more opportunity in America. And I'm going to push back as hard as I can against the Democrats' thrust towards socialism. I mean, I think the Democratic Party today is unrecognizable to the Democrats of, of two, three, four decades ago. You know, when you think about the policies that, that uh, you know, we're seeing coming out of Washington today, it is just a push towards socialism. This election is boiling down to a simple test. Do you want socialism or do you want freedom? If you want freedom, I hope that you'll vote for me. And I hope that you'll all keep me in your prayers and my family. Bill Haggerty, candidate for U.S. Senate from the state of Tennessee. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Larry, thank you very much, too, and all your listeners. Thank you, and may God bless. Meet the Candidates continues as we introduce you to the two people running in District 25, set to represent Putnam, Van Buren, and Cumberland Counties. First up, Democratic challenger, Robin Deck. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me. How hard a decision to uh, put your hat in the ring, as the old saying goes? <laughs> um. It was a decision that I really struggled with. It's it's something that I never really thought I would do. But um, when I looked at what was going on in our state legislature, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm going to stand up and at least say something about, um, you know, what I see going on and, um, and, and bring some issues to the surface. I mean, um, that's, that's pretty much uh what made me decide to um, take this leap and, and, and run for office. So you grew up in Nebraska? I did. I did. Central Nebraska, um, a place called Grand Island. It's a little bit like, it's, so it's a little bit like Crossville, the, the, the county, Hall County, and where I grew up, it's 60,000 people, but uh, 10,000 live in the county and, and like 50,000 live in the town. So... Um, so the ta- uh, the county's more rural, but the town is more urban. So they, they've got a lot of similarities. And when did you come to the Upper Cumberland? I've been here since 2008. I came in, um, it was during the 127 yard sale, and um, I came to visit a friend, and um, um, I was going to stay for a bit, and um, I ended up uh, I ended up married, and... Um, Um, (laughs) I met my husband here and I knew, I mean, I knew right away, like, and we were married about a year later. Um, and then, um, he had, he was raising his daughter, um, who he had custody of since she was an infant and she was 14 at the time. And then we had two more children. And so I have two elementary age children and, um, a beautiful stepdaughter who is now teaching in Chattanooga. So she's graduated college and teaching art in Chattanooga and um, doing very well for herself. And um, That's like the ultimate 127 yard sale story there. <laughs> I know. I was like, what is going on here? It was, it was a little strange. There were so many yard sales and I kind of heard of it, but I didn't really get it. So <laughs> I get it now. So, As someone who uh, is not from here, Mm-hmm. but sees this and decided to live here. What was it that kind of attracted you that now, uh, if you are elected, that you want to preserve about our region? Well, 
I love I love this area, and I think we do need a we do need to um, preserve the um, heritage and and the quality of life here. And I think that's becoming increasingly hard in in the rural areas. Um, I would love to see you know economic growth dollars taken and put in, put into some of the rural areas that can kind of increase um, economic opportunities. And allow people to live where their families have lived for generations, um, and 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 I would like to preserve that. And you see, we 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 are we're attracting people from other places, which I think is great. But what about what about those whose families have been here? You know, like my husband's family's been here for years and years and years, and his grandfather had moved up north to um, work after the war, and then came back. And um, we're losing some of the ability to stay where we've been for so long. And so it's not my family, but it's, it, I've married into this family that's been here for a very long time. Let's talk about some of the issues. And I think economics is a good place to kind of start and, and development. Um, Tennessee is a growing state. The Upper Cumberland is a growing region. Both uh, Cumberland County, Putnam County are are experiencing a lot of growth. And then you have uh, some of the other regions of the Upper Cumberland where growth is not happening. What role does the state play in trying to provide that economic engine to help communities get stronger? Well, I feel that the state owes them something because we're, we're, we're handing out money to large companies Um we have no problem giving, you know, Volkswagen $50 million and we have no problem giving Amazon $65 million. And, you know, we give this company this and that company that, but a fraction of that money could go so far in some of these smaller, more depressed areas. And um, yeah, Crossville's moving, I mean, growing exponentially i mean houses there's hardly any houses on the market and the building is is booming but you know then we have other areas where it, it we really do it it really is a little bit depressed and um the growth isn't there and and the jobs aren't there and and the hospitals are closing i mean that's affecting that's affecting this upper cumberland like the wait times at the hospital, even before the coronavirus, were just getting ridiculous. Um, I mean, I have an example. Like, my husband took my mother-in-law, um, and she sat there seven hours, never was seen. And thank God she was okay, but what if she wasn't, you know? Um, there's another case just the other day where uh, my coworker took her husband, and, and he was um, and this was into Crossville, to the ER, and they waited three and a half hours, and she finally was like, oh, my God, he is going to be better off in bed at home. And so she just hoped for the best until the morning, and she could call her doctor. And that's what we're dealing with here because of the closures, and now it's even being exasperated because of the coronavirus. I know that um, Cookville and Crossville are both taking on other areas because um, of the hospital closures, but then with the coronavirus on top of it, and then also those other rural area coronavirus cases, I mean – we're coming to a head, and it's 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 a little scary to me. Is there anything the state can do to uh, restore health care in, let's say, Fentress County or or in Clay County, where the the hospital there is uh, uh, closed at least for now, and with no sign of it reopening? Well, I mean, can they intervene in the opening, the reopening? I know they tried to reopen Salina, that didn't that didn't really work. But what they could do is they could um, they could they could pass the Insure Tennessee uh, bill that, that's gone to committee and never come out of committee. It's never been voted for on the House floor. They keep it in committee. And that's the expansion of Medicaid, which many believe would have prevented these hospital closures in the first place because the areas are so depressed. There's, um, there's a lot of uninsured and there's a lot of working uninsured. So that expansion, it actually helps the working uninsured who are not um, able to qualify for the Medicaid, per se, but um, but don't make enough to um, get a um, policy off the marketplace. And so there's that, that poverty gap. And so many people in these rural areas fall into that poverty gap. Um, 
they're working but unable to be insured. And so they put off, put off, put off going to the doctor or until it, it comes to a head and they have to go to the emergency room and then they're unable to pay for their emergency room bills. And so, <clears throat> so these hospitals are taking on this unpaid, you know, these unpaid bills and, and, and they just can't, you know, they just can't take it anymore and, and it just falls apart and they end up closing. Robin Deck is a candidate in District 25. This is Meet the Candidates. Everybody talks about the fact that they want to pay teachers more. Why right. Why is that important to you? Morale. <laughs> well, when you see that, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we have increasing um, cost of living, um, and I don't think teachers' pay is is keeping up with inflation, um, when teachers are working two jobs, and I know, and then they have this added, and then they have this year, with the added stress of doing online and in school and, and, and doing their best, but my God, it's, it's, it's kind of killing the morale of um, some of these teachers, and I, and I give them the, the props, because they are doing such a fantastic job, but I mean, it's time that we recognize the job they're doing and 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 pay them what they deserve. It deters people from going into the, the um, profession as well because they're like, well, <laughs> I could do this and, you know, actually be able to afford everything I want. Teachers are going in for the love of what they do, and... They're teaching our children. They're teaching our future. I mean, and I truly believe if we're not, you know, um, setting our children up for success in the future, we're not setting up our economy for success in the future. Let's put COVID aside for just a moment. The assessment part of education. Been a lot of problems with the T and Ready testing. Uh, yeah. are, we, are we on the right track with assessment or how do you see that? I think that I think assessment deters. They've got the benchmark test, which is very simple. It's a very simple process. But um, I, I've proctored for uh, during testing, and it's so stressful for the teachers, for the students. And then you know, I, I don't know. We've had these times where <laughs> the, the entire system fails, and just the utter stress it puts on the entire school. I think it's too much. Um, and and then it deserves them from teaching what they actually should be teaching and what they should be learning. They're just teaching how to test. And, um, yeah, I, I, there's parts of testing, I think, that are fine, but these assessments, I think they put way too much stress and strain on the entirety of the, uh, of the school. Let's move to higher education, and obviously if you are – sent to Nashville, one of the parts of the community you would be representing is Tennessee Tech. Uh, right. What issues are you hearing about? What things are in your mind as it relates to higher education in the state? Um, I think the number one problem with higher education is um, student loan interest. Um, and I think, that, I, I think the people in, um, um, in Tennessee, we're, re we're really fortunate. We have some, um, we close the gap. Um, on um, what the parents can and the cost and what um, the parents can afford. We do close the gap. But when you pull out loans, and um, there's a lot of predatory um, student loans that people aren't really aware of, but the interest, it's just gotten out of hand. Um, you know, it used to be, you know, one and a half, two percent 2%, and, you know, we've got interest rates. Some people are paying like 6 7% interest if not higher, and I just, I don't think that's right, and I think that's the number one issue facing um, uh, college students today. When you look at issues, whatever they are, from education to health care to economic development, infrastructure, whatever they are, how do you try to assess what the options are and try to make a decision? Well, I think you've got to look at all sides. Um, you've got to have some, you've got to have discussion, uh, talk, and, and there's so many 
there's so many complexities to everything that um, I, th- I do think it is important to, to view all sides of all issues and to kind of step away from yourself and, and what your core belief is and see what, what everybody else is saying and see and then um, research. Robin Deck, candidate, as we go to the polls on Tuesday. Robin, it was great to get a chance to find out more about you. Thank for thank you for being part of Meet the Candidates. Okay, thanks so much for having me, Larry. We continue our conversation with the candidates for the Tennessee House in District Number Twenty Five. The incumbent is Cameron Sexton. Is there ever a point where you say to yourself, "Do I want to do this again? Do I want to put myself out there again?" No, not yet. I mean, I, what I've always told people is once, when they get to that point, that's the day they just they probably need to retire. Uh, I haven't been that way yet. I wake up in the morning and still feel like that there's a lot of work to do, and I, I still want to get out of bed and continue doing this. So I, I feel good about continuing in that direction. What has your role as House Speaker taught you about the state and about your role in the state? Well, I mean, our, we are very blessed to live in a state like Tennessee um, that's doing as well as we have been doing over the last 10 years compared to other states first. Um, the role as speaker has really kind of uh, given me the ability to have a bigger role in shaping policy and shaping the budget of the state of Tennessee and working with the governor than I had before. So I'm able to have more input. Um, you know, the one thing I've had to learn is is when you do become speaker, uh, I learned to be the last one in the room to talk because if I talk first, then that stymies conversation. And I want people to feel free to express themselves um, as we're having a conversation and, and not be afraid that if I want to go in a di- different direction, then they may never bring it up. So that's one of the most valuable things I've learned pretty quick. One of the concerns of people in this area has always been of, you know, do we have a voice? Does the Upper Cumberland have a voice in state politics. Do you feel like your role has helped with that? I mean, it has. I mean, I, I think, too, you know, we had a voice before. We have a very good delegation um, in the Upper Cumberland area. We all work very well with one another. I mean, you can look at, you, as far as Tennessee Tech, or it's as close as Tennessee Tech over there, um, you can look at our budgets, how we support our local governments, look at the broadband initiative for the rural areas that we've been really focusing on in the rural areas and up on the Upper Cumberland area. So, I mean, I think we have been working very well. You know, being speaker gives me a little um, added benefit to do a little bit more than we might could do otherwise and get in the conversation earlier with the governor during his budget process if there were things that we were needing. Let's talk about some of the issues, and let's start with broadband as you brought that up. I, I think, and I'll admit I've been surprised during covid that as schools have decided to go virtual or at least offer that option and the number of places still in our region that still don't have that access to broadband. Has this been eye-opening to a lot of people that we've got to do more both at the state level, the local level, and the the private sector to, to make this happen? There is. I mean, I think it's opened eyes up to other issues as well. So, you know, running fiber to the home. Um, is what we, we, the grant process that we put in place about four years ago. And just in the Upper Cumberland area, over about $20 million has flown in into those areas to bring broadband um, into the homes through fiber. One of the things, though, we need to do is start using the technology. Um, as you're running fiber, they could put up hotspots along the way to allow people to immediately hook on through Wi-Fi as they're trying to build fiber. So that's something that we need to go back and take a look at. The other thing is, too, when you talk to the cable companies, only about a third of the people uh, will pick up uh, Internet uh, broadband as it's coming through the area. So the cost is enormous, and we need more people to to um, be able to get the, the service or decide to get the service. Uh, but when only a third of the people are wanting to get it, then that makes it a, a little cost prohibitive sometimes for those companies. How big a part does broadband access still play in economic development? It plays a lot. You mean, I mean, I think uh, most companies are moving in. They have different types of jobs and different needs. And, you know, mostly in our areas, in the, in the cities, um, they usually have good broadband service 
it's when you get out into the, the areas into the county, whether it's in Cumberland County or Putnam County, um, that you may have issues. You know, one of the other things that we found out through this process with broadband is even though uh, people are buying uh, X number of services, they're not getting the service that they're paying for because our lines haven't been hooked up uh, uh, in fiber. They've been copper or something of that nature. Frontier is a big one in, in Cumberland area as well as in Putnam County that we're trying to work through and solve that issue. So not only do we have needing people to get Internet, there's people who have Internet that don't have the service that they're, that they're paying for, and that's an issue as well. It seems as though over the last several months and last several years, really, that we've been blessed with some major economic development moves. Just the just last week, for example, the Herman Grand Opening in White County. Uh, do you see a lot of movement towards getting businesses into the Upper Cumberland? Are we are we healthy in that area? We are. You know, the Upper Cumberland area is a, a hot spot. Cooksville's hot with uh, new industrial park over there and all the land that they have for opportunity. Um, what I will say, though, is, is that's the difference between having a state that's had Republican control for the last 10 years compared to the Democrat control of the 100 years prior to that 10 year. Because in 10 short years with Republicans in control, we have more jobs in the state of Tennessee than ever. Where our wages are going up. More businesses are moving into our state. More families are wanting to move into the state of Tennessee. And it all starts with having a government that's run very conservatively with the right policies that promote small businesses, that we cut taxes, we don't increase taxes, we reduce regulation, we don't increase regulation, and we make it more affordable and a better economic climate for them to do business in. And I think that's what we've done in the last 10 years under Republican control. Cameron Sexton, access to health care. There are many that worry that 10 care is not operating at the, the way that it should, especially as it relates to money that's there from the federal government. What is your stand on that? Well, does any government-run health care plan work efficiently? You know, so, I mean, I think there's there's a lot that we can do out there. Um, you know, 10 care is meant to help people, um, but it's also not meant to be on for life. And I think we have to relook at that. We need to have a... a um, uh, a healthcare system, uh, as well as a system for financial assistance that helps people get off of it to, to go find work, to find other health insurance, and not be a way of life. And so, if you're looking at our healthcare market, I would say our biggest issue right now, one of them, is the affordability of healthcare. Uh, we passed telehealth to make it easier to provide more access for patients, uh, which we think will help because they won't have to take as much time off from work. To go to the doctor, they can do it from home or they can do it from work and, and do those appointments. But we have an insurance industry that's monopoly in our state that tell you what policies you can have, what the costs are, who your doctors are going to be, who's in network, who's out of network. And they make you change your provider just because they don't want to put them in network. They own the pharmacy benefit managers that dictate the price of, of pharmacy products. They now own EMS companies. And now they're starting to go into private practice against their own physicians. In our state and all across America, we have an insurance monopoly problem that we need to break to really put the patient and the providers back in charge. Let's turn to education, starting at the higher education levels. Have some of the changes uh, that have been made in recent years to bring control more local, uh, have they worked, in your opinion, as it relates to Tennessee Tech and the other universities in the state? Oh, it has tremendously because now they have their own board that represents their body and they make the decisions that they think are best instead of having a, a board that uh, looks at all universities and sometimes the bigger universities have more say on those boards. Um, so I think it's really helped Tennessee Tech and MTSU and ETSU and all of our universities having their own boards. Um, I, I, I think it has. Um, and, and I think you have seen that with our capital projects. I think you've seen uh, Tennessee Tech really increasing their status with their new buildings for nursing or science or whatever direction they want to go. We're looking forward to adding another one this year uh, with Representative Williams and Senator Bailey's help. And so we're, we're, very, we're very glad that we made that change under Governor Haslam. We know, of course, the, the challenges of education with COVID. If we take that out for just a second, um, assessment, it's been much discussed uh, it has been much debated, and yet we still don't seem to have 
the scenario that everybody agrees on? What needs to be done about that as it relates to uh, lower grades and assessment? Yeah, so we still need to to test students because even though um, we're not going to hold the teachers' uh, evaluation uh, accountable for the assessments that the students take, it's still very important that we have the data, regardless of how bad or how good it is, to know where that student is so that we can continue to track and monitor and continue to help them. But I will say, one of the things I, two of the things I have talked to the governor about, we're hoping to maybe have some um, positive push this coming year, is we want teachers to teach in the classroom. We want our guidance counselors to be guidance counselors. But we also know that kids need some type of counseling um, to help them with whether it's home life or uh, life at school or just ordinary life. So I want to push for something called telecounseling, which will take the pressures off and allow us to really help our, our school kids uh, get over any certain issue that they may have because, uh, you know, there's a lot of mental health issues or other those, especially when you get into high school with the teen suicide rate. So I want to push for telecounseling. The other thing is, you know, we want to reward our teachers who coach sports, which is a wonderful thing, and they get a stipend. But I want to push to where if teachers want to do a little more in the classroom and help mentor a kid or maybe tutor a, a student, then they should get a stipend for staying extra and providing that service for us. So I think there's some things we can do to continue to reward teachers um, as well as get additional help in that will allow them to teach more and not have to be the wide variety of, of help that they have to be for that kid. So you're thinking of a, a different type of coaching that they're doing, but uh, along the lines of the uh, what an athletic coach provides you. Yeah, our athletic coaches do a wonderful job, but I don't think we should send a signal to the teachers and to students that we're only going to pay teachers who want to coach sports more than those who want to stay after school and mentor or tutor a child. I think they should be given a stipend as well for doing that. Finally, Cameron Sexton, why should someone vote for you Tuesday? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to represent the Upper Cumberland area, and I think we've done a wonderful job. We're continuing to meet the needs and, and what we need to do to be successful, whether it's working with our elected officials, our educators, uh, the school board, working with our constituents, small businesses, our uh, tourism venue. We've done a wonderful job working with everybody, making sure that we are successful in our area. But at the end of the day, I don't take anything for granted. I still need people's support and vote. I think my record speaks for itself. We've done a very good job of putting people before politics, like I said, 10 years ago. And I appreciate the opportunity to continue serving and also being speaker of this great state of Tennessee. Cameron Sexton on the ballot Tuesday. As always, sir, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. For complete coverage of election 2020 and the news that matters to you, follow News Talk 94.1 on Facebook and Twitter. If you missed any part of our interviews with Cameron Sexton, Robin Deck, or Bill Haggerty, they are available on our website. Tomorrow night, we'll sit down with the Democratic candidate for U.S. House to represent the Upper Cumberland. We'll also go in-depth on District 40 and the race to represent DeKalb and Smith Counties. Thanks for being with us.